this episode of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast, we're going to get the opportunity to hear from Dr. John Crispin, who's a professor at Valdosta State University. John is on the cusp, on the forefront of instructing and raising up future entrepreneurs. I am so fascinated by his comments, and I think you will be too. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. I was recently on the campus of Valdosta State University, part of the University of Georgia system in Valdosta, Georgia, and I was speaking with Dr. John Crispin. Now, John is one of these people who I think you could just really say is a Renaissance man. In fact, I could picture him uh, maybe back in the 1700s just being somebody who always had a quest for learning. He is literally one of the smartest people that I know but he doesn't come off as a know-it-all, right? So he's just somebody who you could sit and chat with. Uh, he's a musician. Uh, I've had the chance to play uh, with him on uh, on music teams. Uh, I've actually been on a on a week long sailing trip with John. Uh, he is just somebody who is funny and engaging. But every now and then, you just you just know he'll throw something in there that just tells you, oh my gosh. That guy is just one of the smartest people on the planet. Anyway, so in my quest for innovation, I, I had the chance to sit down with John Crispin. And so just, uh, you know, for the next few minutes, uh, take a listen to some of the insight and wisdom of this gentleman who is literally uh, educating and training future leaders, people who are going to go on to work actively in businesses to start businesses. He teaches entrepreneurship. Well, he'll, he'll introduce himself. Take a listen. Okay, it is uh, a beautiful October afternoon. I'm here with Dr. John Crispin at Valdosta State University. John, if you would tell the IDG podcast a little bit about Dr. John Crispin. Well, I've been on the faculty here at Valdosta State for just over six years now. Uh, before I taught at Valdosta State, I worked in business in various capacities, manufacturing. I worked in the construction industry. I've worked with product development and marketing of products. Um, so I've worked in a variety of industries before I made my return back to academics. And that's an excellent point because you hear people all the time talk about academics who have never actually worked in business. You know, the, the proverbial, here's this somebody who's teaching, but Those has never actually teach, run, a, right? run a business, right? But I've known you for many years and you actually worked in process improvements. You're a, yep. you're a, what a, a, a lean six sigma master black belt. There you go. Yep. Process you go. improvement methodology. So this idea of innovation and where innovation falls in, in a business, you're, you're a, uh, you're someone who can opine on this subject. Yeah, and I can, well, I can talk about just about anything for any length of time. In fact, <laughs> if you give me a time limit, that's actually much more difficult for me to deal with than if I have unlimited time to talk about things. I hear you, I hear you. So here's, uh, my theory on innovation is, of course, that it, it's fueled by creativity. You have to have creativity to have innovation, but innovation requires more, that you have to further uh, be able to express, write down or, or explain your idea, that you have to be able to manufacture it, create a process, whatever, and then ultimately it has to have utility in order for it to be useful. Generally speaking, this innovation is creativity, 
express, manufacture, and consume. Would you would you ascribe or at least say that for in, in general purposes that 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 would be a good definition from John Crispin's standpoint? Well, yeah, actually, I think you know you mentioned that novel. I mean that uh, innovation does not happen without creativity. I absolutely agree with that, but I do think it's far more than just being creative. Being creative for the sake of being creative makes you eccentric, but not successful, right? So when you think about making that translation to something that's innovative, I do think I like that you say, you know, it's got to be consumed, right? So it's got to be useful. It's not just novel, right? When we think of creative, we think of novel things, things that are unique. Um, They may have some aesthetic value, but beyond that, they're not useful necessarily. But when we talk about innovation, it's got to be... I think of a product like you see on late night infomercial and you go... In your mind, who who, who, who buys, buys that? that? Who's buys that? Right, right? in the world. And, and so, but right. obviously, I don't think they would advertise somebody. Yeah. But it, but if nobody is buying it, whatever it is you're selling, as a process, procedure, products, service, right? It it can't be. It can't really be innovative. Yeah. And so the other thing that I think of when I think of innovation, most people I think go immediately to the invention level, and innovation is is a little bit more subtle than invention, right? So invention is something new. Um, but, and, and and of course, necessity is the mother of invention. I think Thomas Edison said that. I'm not positive it was Thomas Edison, but in, necessity is the mother of invention. I think necessity is also the mother of a lot of innovation. And there are radical innovations, but there are also kind of incremental innovations. And I think right now we've got a lot more, um, well, we've got more of both happening than we have had, I think, at any time in kind of the history of business. And in fact, when I think of, when I first started thinking about innovation, I go back to Uh, an economist who was kind of an avant-garde economist. He was at Wharton School of Business, so he was quite well established, but his name is Paul Zane Pilzer. He wrote a couple of books back in the early 90s. One was called God Wants You to Be Rich. The other was called Unlimited Wealth. So he had these kind of provocative titles, but his, his basic contention was as an economist, he thought that economics had the had the science of economics all wrong. Historically, economics has been the science of scarce resources, right? What do you do with scarce resources? But he said that technology, changes in technology, not just information technology, but all kinds of technology, are actually changing the game for economics. And he said the connections between technologies um, are driving economic growth. So whereas in the past, economics had said that we can only grow as fast as our resources allow, he said in the future, the potential growth in any economy is the gap between technology at the forefront, right, the, the bleeding edge of technology as it's being implemented, and technology as it's now in the hands of the average consumer. And he, his observation was that gap is bigger now than it ever has been, and it's growing. And this was back in the early 90s, I think, when he was writing this. So even more so today, I think when we think about technology on the cutting edge and technology in the hands of the average consumer, that gap is larger now certainly than it was 30 years ago. And, and you may be one of the best people to ask this question because you, you just referenced the fact that this gap may be a, as large as any time in, in our history. And yet you are here on the campus of Alaska State University teaching entrepreneurial classes. You're actually right. uh, have students who are self-selecting to say, right. we would be people thinking about starting businesses and yep. and so forth. And hopefully those would be people who would be thinking innovatively. So, yeah. so as you sort of survey your, you know, the students that you have in your uh, uh, classes, you know, butts and seats, and then you've got your virtual classes, as you survey and sort of think about your exchange with those students, how, how do you see them 
dealing with that gap. In other words, it's not you and I that they're going to really have to deal with that. It's really going to be these students who two years, three years, five years, eight years on are going to be starting and running businesses. Yeah. So I think to me, the biggest transition uh, that, that, that the, those who will truly be successful by understanding this gap and how do we then use this, right? Because the gap creates opportunities. Um, the other thing that I think is happening is that innovation happens more and more and more connecting to seemingly unconnected technologies. Oh, um, and so technologies make new things possible, but the initial application of a technology may be a long ways from where it ends up. Think of GPS. So GPS, um, I, I know back in the early 90s, as I was reading Paul Zane Pilzer's books, uh, I heard that uh, from a military, he was, a, I think, a lieutenant colonel pilot in the Air Force, who was describing how he was flying back from being out in the Persian Gulf for the Persian Gulf War that was happening about that time. And he was flying in his fighter jet from Saudi Arabia back to Moody Air Force Base here in Valdosta, Georgia. And he said, from the time I took off to the time I landed, I never touched the controls. And this is in the early 90s. He said GPS technology then enabled them to basically autopilot that plane from Saudi Arabia to Valdosta, Georgia. And he said, when I came into Valdosta, Georgia, there was a low cloud cover and I didn't actually see the runway until I broke below this cloud cover a thousand feet. He said, I was like less than three feet off of dead center of the runway. And he said, I had not touched the controls in Saudi Arabia. Well, back in 1991, that almost seems like rocket science. Today, we're talking about applying GPS technologies and similar technologies to self-driving cars, right? So, so that technology is now finding new and better ways. We've had GPS location for Google Maps and the like, mm -hmm. but we're still finding ways to implement that technology, but it's connecting with other technologies. So where I think a lot of innovation happens is people seeing the connection between this development over there and that development over here. And now if I can combine these two things, something new and practical to the point of, it's gotta be something that is uh, produced, packaged, and consumed, mm -hmm. right? Something that somebody will find useful in some way. So those that, I think today's generation, to get all this to say, we talk about talking forever, right? <laughs> all this to answer your original question, I think today's generation of college students, um, they have been always in this world of, of radical change in stuff, right? Technologies affecting the change in smartphones, for example. Um, they're not, they don't even blink at a new app that comes in. They, they integrate new technologies, new things into their lives um, almost seamlessly. It's just a natural thing. But what's still not natural is seeing what's next, right? And that's where innovation comes. Yes, all this change is happening. Somebody's out there thinking of things, but can you begin to see the world where you see these gaps and these opportunities and you begin connecting dots, um, and, and bringing this technology to play over there, right? And, and I think that's where we're going to see right. those that figure out how do I make that a process um, so that I can capitalize that so that I can become an innovative business because one product is not going to make your business successful, right? Even as an entrepreneur, sure, um, it might get you started, but you will always, always, always be asking what's next, what's, what's next, next, what's next. Some of that what's next will be forced on you by your competition, some of it will be asked of you by your customers, but where you really get ahead of the game is what, for example, Steve Jobs at Apple seemed to be so good at doing is 
seeing what people didn't even know they needed yet and presenting it to them. And right. then when they see it, they say, I've got to have that. Got to have it. And, and I actually introduced a concept in, in a recent podcast called exomorphosis, this idea of change from without that, that, you know, we, we're not necessarily sitting here looking for change, but this change is kind of happening around us and we get, we get swept up in it. And the, the iPhone is a, is, is sort of a, a maybe overtired example, right, right, of that. But uh, I remember distinctly Steve Ballmer, who at the time was president of Microsoft, in an interview laughing, openly laughing on, on a right. network TV show about this joke product that iPhone had come out right. with. And hey, it didn't even have a keyboard. There's no way it could be a serious business right. computing device, right? So right. our, uh, as you accurately point out, our attitudes change. Let me ask you this. Your students are in the business school. So they are right. uh, accountants and marketing people and salespeople and managers right. and, you know, economics, across finance, right. economic fire across that whole spectrum. Uh, it is part of my contention is, is that these folks will go on, whether they start companies or whether they become a part of an existing company, that they may not themselves think that their job um, is to be innovative, right? That there's some other, see, there's these IT people down there. We got some programmers. There's, we have vendors, you know, or suppliers. That's their job to be innovative, how do you see, I mean, do you get do you get a sense of that or do you get the sense that these future generations coming out really would be looking for perhaps an innovative way, even if it was only how to eliminate step four of a five-step process in accounting? Well, I do know for a fact that probably more than, certainly more than I think was typical of my generation, this generation is looking for this. How do we streamline this? How do we simplify this? Right? They, they, they're asking they, questions. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do this? Right? They, they, and and while as a professor you want to say I'm the expert, just do what I tell you. <laughs> the mentality is one that leads to change, right? That leads to the adoption right. of new practices. And there are no sacred cows with this generation, right? They'll ask these questions of anyone about anything, which I think will play into their hands. Most organizations, I think. Um, do structure and they do have roles, product development, marketing, right? So how do you've got people that are paid to think about these things, what new features, what, what new technologies can we implement? But to your point, I think the organizations that will truly drive success in the future will certainly have that kind of top-down planned innovation, planned change, product development, you know, what are listening to our customers? What are they asking for? But those that will truly excel will also have ways built into their organization for emergent connections. And those emergent connections come from people who are just dealing with the customer um, at the front lines every day. And they see a gap. They see something that doesn't make sense. They see something that doesn't work well. They hear from a customer a frustration point. And so the, the question then becomes, how are we listening to those people that are dealing with the customer that are observing the customer as they use the product who see these little gaps, right? The little gap might turn into something much bigger, but you've got to hear what they see as issues um, and then always be asking, so how do we address that? And it might not seem like it's in your wheelhouse, but if it's your customer, you'd better be paying attention. Right, right. And I also believe that uh, these these young folks are coming into scenarios uh, they don't know your forest. They don't know what your trees look like. And they go, what is it? Why, why are we doing, why are we doing step four? And you know, a lot of their supervisors are older Gen X or even baby boomers. Right. And so they, they're like, Hey, you know, this, this is how we do things here. Right. You know, it's, it comes after done. step three and it's before step five. 
And so this idea that millennials jump around to a lot of different jobs could be just the fact that they're asking these kind of questions. They're kind of getting, you know, slapped back or whatever. And they're like, I don't want to, I don't want to work in a place like that. So I do think there's opportunities for older generations to be appreciative of the fact that these folks are asking questions. They are examining things and we better take the time to say, Hmm, somebody's looking at something with a fresh set of eyes. Why don't we sit down and talk about this? And at my industry, I, I do a lot of banking and finance, as you know, and it's heavily regulated. So sometimes the answer right. is, hey, this doesn't make sense, but there's a law, there's right. a regulation, there's right. a rule that we have to do that. So fine, explain it, you know, and then they go, okay, I, I got it. It's, right. a, it's a rule, we, we got to do it. But just, just to ignore them altogether just seems like um, not taking advantage of their genuine nature of being inquisitive and saying, hey, let's, let's look at this. Yeah. And I think they... They, they move jobs more quickly because they're looking for an opportunity and they want, you know, with the advent of social media, everyone feels their voice is important. Well, they want their voice to be heard in every place in every way. So, so whereas the, I think when I entered business, when you start, you paid your dues, right? You're what behind the ears, you're going to do what I tell you to do until I decide that it's worth asking you, what do you think? But they want to tell you what they think on day one, mm -hmm. and, and 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 yeah, a lot of their questions may be asked in ignorance, which can be frustrating to somebody who's kind of more established, more part of the status quo. But they they also see things differently than we see things, um, you know. And I'm part of the Generation X, right? So not long after the baby boomers, I rolled rolled around. But I I can think of from the time I was born to the time I was in college, a television was a television, right? That the real the real change was when you could screw a cable in and it improved your reception and you got more channels. Remote right? control. Remote controls, mm -hmm. right? I was the remote control when I was a kid. My dad <laughs> said, we'd go say, go change the, the channel to such and such. But think about how the television has changed uh, just in the past few years. Right. We, we went from cathode ray tubes to flat screens. Now we're looking at uh, OLEDs. Now we're looking at curved surfaces. Now we're looking at smart televisions. Now we don't even use the airwaves anymore at all. We don't even use cable anymore. We're streaming, right? So the content is proliferating. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the market space is getting more crowded, but people are open to trying new things. And this generation, that's always been their world. Things things have changed. I mean, the, the students that are in college now, when the iPhone was launched in what, 2007 mm -hmm. or something like that, they were they didn't even have a phone. Every phone they've ever had has been essentially an iPhone right. derivative, or if not an iPhone. They are digital natives. They're digital natives. That's right. Um, and so when we think about technology, we tend to go to electronic technologies, but technologies like 3D printing, technologies that allow rapid prototyping and manufacturing, um, means now we can test out and try new products and new features at a rate that was un that, that's unprecedented. Well, we need people who can think at the speed of our what our technology now enables if we're going, and that's the company that's going to be the successful and that harnesses those that are thinking at the speed that technology is changing about those changes, right? That's where innovation is going to come. So let me switch gears a little bit. As a, uh, as a professor here at Battle State University, you've also seen changes in education. Now you might yeah. say that, 
overall, it hasn't changed as rapidly as, 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 as some of these things, but changes Academics are, are not known as being innovators, innovators. <laughs> but, we're, but we're being forced to think about these things. Exomorphosis, kicking and screaming, right. along we go. And I know one of those changes is the virtual classroom, right? right? So you obviously teach some of your classes yep. virtually. Uh, and you do a lot of things to create an engagement in there similar to what you might have in a, in a regular class. And there are some people that might argue that you can have uh, just as much, if not more, engagement with people talking online, right, and so forth. What are the kinds of things that you see or hear talked about that would be future, like what's the next generation of of sort of innovation in education in, in terms of how people are going to consume and, and, you know, acquire knowledge that that allows them to go out and be a productive member of society? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, you know, as you're asking the question, the first thing that I began thinking of is the gap between what is typically taught in a university setting, which is explicit knowledge, and what's needed in the quote unquote real world outside the ivory towers of academics is practical knowledge, is tacit knowledge, is more experiential based things, right? So I think I saw a statistic recently that said, that was talking about millennials, millennials now who are already millionaires. And something like only 20% of millennials who are millionaires have graduated from college. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a college professor, that's a scary statistic, especially if you're teaching in business and you're saying, wait a minute, only one in five has a college education of those that we would buy our yardstick of success right. have attained success. So how do you make that translation? And, you know, when I think about entrepreneurs, we do teach entrepreneur here at Vital State. We're talking about developing an entrepreneurial center. Um, downstairs from my office, we have the Small Business Development Center. And so we are kind of training and teaching people, how do you become entrepreneurs? How do you get a business started? Well, of course, you can teach the mechanics of a business plan, but uh, a business plan will only take you so far. You, you can know your costs once you, for example, once you think of your what your business structure will look like. But what breaks down in the planning environment is projections, right? So you're projecting how quickly your revenues will grow. And most entrepreneurs are wildly optimistic about how successful their business will be. So they radically underestimate <laughs> how much money they're going to need to get this business going, not because they didn't know their expenses, but because they overestimated how quickly their revenues were going to grow. And the money that they borrowed or the money that they came up with to finance their business, they run out of it long before their business has kind of reached that break-even Which point. is really the death knell of almost any business. Whether That's you're right. a startup, it's just not having enough money to get to the point of cash flow break even. Right. So, so the question then becomes, um, how do you learn? Because in the, the beginning of any business, you, you are making mistake after mistake after mistake. Another way to say that is you're learning more and more and more. How do you make small mistakes that enable you to learn without dying? Right. So, so when, when we think about some, and there, this is not a new question that's being asked, but we think about business incubators, right? Business incubators will, uh, Con uh, connect an entrepreneur with resources that are important to their business. They might even provide them with lights, electricity, office space, rent-free uh, while they're getting started. But they put them in a kind of a, just, just that, an incubator, a test bed where they can work out proof of concept, where they uh, have more time than they might otherwise to try things and see what actually works. Because very few businesses literally spring up overnight. This is true whether you're a successful performance artist. This is true whether you're a successful person in business. The person who appears to be an overnight success, when you talk to them, no, they were at it a decade before they finally had right. their, quote unquote, their break. 
right? And then they go from nobody knew me to I am now on the biggest stages in the they world. They spent 10 years to become an overnight success. Right, I, it took me yeah. 10 years to become an overnight success. But they were tinkering, right? They were trying, they were, and, and, and eventually they innovated. Yeah, right. They came up with something that worked, something that, that people wanted to consume, mm -hmm. right? They were as creative as they, on day one as they are on right. year 10, but they, they finally find that combination of things that make them successful. And I think that's true of a lot of businesses. The, the, the most successful businesses have probably survived their mistakes until they found what worked. Did you catch that? This idea that small mistakes lead to wisdom, right? If, if you're starting a business and you're a young person and you're full of vigor and you just know that everything's going to be great, but you really haven't had the ability to make small mistakes that are not catastrophic that lead to wisdom. That's where these incubators, that's where, you know, uh, the training like Dr. Crispin gives in his class can be so, uh, so instructive, so informative that allow you to say, oh, I see what can happen here. I think I can avoid that or, or here's how I can remediate or mitigate that in the future. I work with financial institutions and banks and credit unions hate mistakes. They hate mistakes. I say this over and over again in my uh, summer classes at the University of Colorado, that banks would, would rather their people bunt for singles rather than try and hit home runs, if we wanted to use a baseball example. And the reason for that is, is all of the professional baseball players who lead the league in home runs also lead the league in strikeouts. And if you abhor strikeouts, if your goal is to not strike out, well, you're not going to hit very many home runs. So when we think about innovation, this idea that mistakes are somehow bad or a problem is something that we need to change. Now, hear me on this. I think there's a difference between a mistake in execution versus a mistake in innovation, right? When somebody's trying something new, they make a mistake, we shouldn't punish that. We should applaud that. If somebody is trying to do a rote task that they do over and over and over again, and they keep making mistakes, well, that's not a mistake in innovation. They just are not executing this properly. And that's not something that we should uh, accept. So I just thought that was amazing uh, insight from Dr. Crispin. I also asked him about, well, how then do your students get the opportunity to, to practice, to engage in some kind of exercise um, that details these aspects of, of running and starting a business? Take a listen to what he said. So let me ask you this. One, one of the coolest things I get to do is I teach at the graduate banking school out at the University of Colorado. And, and uh, as somebody who doesn't have any kind of advanced degree, uh, it just makes me feel like I'm actually a real academic, yeah, right? At two right. weeks, I get to go teach at this banking school. But they have there something called bank sim. So it's basically a simulator. Right. And the seniors, so it's a three-year program, the, the third-year students, basically every day over, uh, over the period of two weeks, run one quarter of bank financials, right? So mm -hmm. they, they have to make decisions mm -hmm. uh, and then they the next day they see the results of that quarter and then they make decisions and they see results. Is there the equivalent of a business sim that yep. like that you would use in the entrepreneurial because, hey, you want to start a business? Okay, you're going to be making these decisions and, and these kinds of lessons like uh, having enough cash uh, to get all the way through to cash flow neutral and, and other impacts the 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 consequences of decisions that they can sort of see those in a simulated right. 
So actually, we don't use it or have not used it in entrepreneurial classes, but I teach the uh, capstone class for all of our undergraduate business majors. It's called business policy and it's strategic planning. But a big part of that strategic planning class is actually using a simulation called CapSim. And CapSim, uh, you are taking over a company that actually was a monopoly that's being broken apart into six equal parts or six equal companies that have the same resources. So you're starting with exact competitive parity with everyone else in the industry. And you've got to make financing decisions. You've got to make market or product development decisions. You've got to make decisions about investing, how much you'll invest in sales promotions, marketing promotions, um, quality improvements, right? Process improvements. You have to make decisions in just about every area of business that we teach here at Valis Estate. But you're competing for customers against these other teams in your class. So the, so that the are whole group's the broken decisions. up into six teams and they all start That's off right. equal. They start and out then, on equal ground yeah. and, and they get to see. Now, the frustrating for business students is you're grading them. A, a portion of their grade is how well did you do in a competitive environment? Well, not everybody wins. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a, some lose. It's a zero sum game. <laughs> it's a zero sum game. Right. So, so if somebody dominates the industry, that means you might have one winner and five losers. Right. Well, a business student says, Hey, I'm getting a C in this or a D in this portion of my grade, but it's not quote unquote my fault. And I said, well, this is business, <laughs> right? This is the real world. And you've right. got to not just do one thing. Well, the other thing is businesses. First of all, some businesses succeed in spite of themselves because they were at the right place at the right time. Second of all, um, you probably have to do more than one thing well to be successful. Um, so, you know, I, I like to say customers only want four things. They want the best, they want it now, they want it customized to their liking, and they want it for free. If you could give a customer all four just of those, those things, things, you would dominate your industry, but we can't. Right. But just being the best, if somebody's faster and similar, right? Maybe they're not quite as good, but they're faster and they're less ex less expensive and they're able to customize mm -hmm. it, you might be the best and you might not win. So you can't put all of your eggs in one basket, right? So when we think about innovation, it, a lot of us think of that one eureka, that one big idea that's going to launch us to success. But innovation really matters at every level, at every in everything that you do. So if you think about the students that are going through that exercise, right, they're they're actually trying to make one of these six uh, entities work. What are some of the big aha moments that you see that tells you, okay, they're they're starting to get it. They're starting to understand that this is a multifaceted thing, and it's not just about your ability to do this one thing well. You you have to be well rounded. You have to be thinking ahead of the curve. You've got to you know you've got to make sure that you're you're working together with the team to all you know. Wh wh what are those kind of moments where you go, okay, I think I think the light bulb's going on now. Well, I, I would say there it it almost different differs by major. So um, marketing. I, I see the marketing students, they like to shoot for the moon, but they often overextend themselves. They'll so, go in too much on advertising, you mean? Or, too, well, or, too much on advertising, and they, they'll think too much, too fast, too soon, right? So they'll overextend big. themselves, yeah. right? They think we can grow, and, and right. they think in terms let's, of unlimited put, growth. Let's put a Super Bowl ad out right, there right that's away. Right. right, right, right. So they overextend themselves, uh, and they may, for example, build far more than they can sell. And now they've got inventory that's going obsolete that's they're, they've got carrying costs, right? And so they, they, mm -hmm. they create other drains. On the other hand, people that are finance and accounting majors are usually way too conservative. They mm -hmm. want to hold on to whatever money they yeah. have, and they're not thinking about how are we investing for growth? 
right? If we want to build more next year, we've got to be buying that capacity now. If we want to sell more next year, we've got to be investing in marketing now, right? Right. So um, they want to count. They want to count the beans they've got, and they don't want to let those beans go. So the best teams do have a balance, right? They've got the conservative voice of the finance people saying we can't overextend ourselves, but they've got those people that are pushing and saying, here's where I see an advantage and we've got to explore. So that. the team formation the is team pretty formation critical. So is in, in the exercise that's run here at Valdosta state, are they, uh, are they self-selecting their team team members or are you sort of randomly putting them together? How do the teams so, get formed? Actually I have team projects in all of my classes and this is the only class where I do allow them to self-select. Usually I assign them randomly because my, my, my thought is the same losers that are going to be on your team now, and you may be one of those losers, right? The same losers that are going to be on your team because I'm randomly assigning you, you're stuck with, will be the people you'll be working with and having to find success with in business. Right. And if you can figure out how to do that here, you will be ahead of the curve. Right. But in this class, because I think they find the, the assignment so intimidating, I allow them to self-select their teams, but I do encourage them to think about the mix of people. Okay, so up front, you're giving them some instructions saying, hey, look, if you just grab all of your peeps your that are all, people. all of your marketing people together, that has all business majors they're all it. across, all right. across the board. And so you're specifically saying a cross-functional team, cross -functional team is going to have the best yeah. chance. And how often do you see where they literally just ignore your advice and, and go off and create just uh, There are always some teams in my class that stick with the people they know, which are the other accounting majors or people who think just like majors, them right think people who think right. just like them right and um and they almost always struggle i i think the marketing folks more often blow up than others <laughs> the accounting people often and finance people often have less success than they could they rarely go bust right they rarely kind of flame right. out but they never are the best performing teams because they're just too conservative yeah they buried their talent in the ground yeah yeah right. yeah did you catch that comment that Dr. John made about cross-functional teams? Think about a team leader who only picks their own peeps, their own friends. And what did he say? They almost always struggle. Right now, I'm working with a company up in Michigan that is doing an innovation challenge, and they're really uh, uh, taking this to heart and trying to get everyone in the organization thinking about innovation. And as a requirement of these innovation challenges, they must form a cross-functional team, meaning that it's it's not allowed for them just to pick all of the people that are in their particular area of the company. I was recently talking with the CEO of that company, and and he was telling me the most amazing story of a of a programmer, somebody who's very technical oriented. And this is an individual who's kind of known in the office as really not saying much. Like literally, this is somebody who puts his head down, he does his programming work, but doesn't chit chat with people in the office. It's like to get him to say a few words is like an amazing thing, right? In the office. So now all of a sudden he joins a cross-functional team. And not only does he provide a lot of valuable information to that team, but as a part of the presentation that was made for the challenge, he gave the most eloquent um, responses specifically to questions from the judges about their idea. And it blew the management team away because they had never heard this individual articulate um, and talk in such a way as he did because of his role as a part of that team. So, you know, we talk about innovation, and that's certainly a laudable reason why you should be 
innovating is because there's some outcome there that you're trying to achieve that improves the business. But sometimes just the idea that people have the ability to actually stretch themselves and put themselves in a different position also enables the betterment of the company, that that one programmer now is encouraged, that the the feedback that he's received is going to allow him to be even more and more and more effective for that company. So, wow, what what a great story. Let's hear a little bit more about how Dr. Crispin knows that some of his teaching is actually effective. So as you think about the future, you, you get a chance to see, you know, young people, uh, most of, I think most of your students are juniors, juniors, yeah, and, juniors seniors, and seniors, you know, so they're, That's they're kind of in the, in the process of matriculating and, and, and going on as you have a chance to run into a former student or hear about, do you, do you get a chance to hear about some success story? Somebody that comes back and say, Hey, Dr. Crispin, I, I heard you say this in the class and I thought, Oh my gosh, uh, what is that old man talking about? And then now I get it. Uh, now I'm in business now. I'm a part of a business and I, I'm more appreciative of advice or counsel that you gave. Yeah. I mean, I certainly I've had that. I've had, um, I, I, I think of two students that, that particularly came to mind as you were saying that one was a student who was in my small business management class. And while she was a student here at Valdosta state, she started kind of a pop-up shop and online clothing boutique. And when she took my small business management class, one of the things, the projects that I have them do, the big team project, and it's like half of their grade, is they have to, as a team, they have to analyze a small business and essentially develop their own recommendations. And then they have to develop a plan for implementing their recommendations. And they have to put five years of pro forma projections together for if we implement these How do we think this is going to impact our expenses? How do we think this is going to impact our revenues? What do we think the business is going to look like as we implement these recommendations? Now, this girl convinced her team to analyze her pop-up shop and online boutique. And um, she took the learning from that and actually emailed me the day that she opened her uh, brick-and-mortar boutique in her hometown. Now, it's been a while. She hasn't given me any updates. I don't know if she was (laughs) successful or not. Right, but she she kind of saw the vision of what she could do and, and was able to kind of test it out in real time mm-hmm. in her with her pop-up store and her online stuff, but then think about building that business plan and what would this really look like. And she she graduated and she marched out the door with her game plan in hand and she made it made it uh to the point where she launched her business. Now my my I'm an organizational psychologist by background. I've got lots of business experience um in the the business world. But what I really like to do is kind of coach people in how to work with people, especially how to work with people. When I was, for example, a Lean Six Sigma Master Black Belt working in the corporate world, um, the people that have the best ideas are the ones that are doing it every day that see the friction points, right? So so when you build that cross-functional team, that cross-functional team has to have people that are in it, not just people that can study it, but not exclusively, right? right? You want you want fresh eyes. You want people who ask the questions out of ignorance. Why do you do that? That doesn't make any sense, right? So you've got to have that, that balance. Um, but the real key is getting people to want to engage in thinking about how do we make the business improve. So my personal vision statement when I was in leadership positions, how do I know I'm being an effective leader? My goal was to have Every person at every level, every day, working spontaneously in the best interest of the organization. So I wanted everybody to be thinking, how do I make an impact on the effectiveness of this business? Not just how do I do my job, 
how do I do my job well, but what can I do to make this business the, better? Even if it was just something that I can do that it makes five minutes worth of time right. saved on some quote right. wrote or, or even if I'm the procedure. janitor and I can remove an obstacle to somebody, you know, right. that, that might be a hindrance to them, right? What can I do to improve the, the organization? Um, so thinking about the collective whole from whatever seat I'm in within the organization. And if, if you can get every person at every level, every day thinking right. or acting spontaneously in the best interest of the organization, then you have, you know, now what I'm thinking a lot about is this idea of self-organization. So it's not top-down directed organization or, or adaptability. It's how do we, as those that are senior leaders, create the conditions under which people will coordinate themselves for the betterment of the organization? This is not the same as anarchy, right? Anarchy is letting right. everybody do whatever they want. Right. If you let everybody, they will not self-organize in anything constructive for the organization. They will do whatever they want. But there are certain conditions under which people will begin to want to work together to solve problems, to innovate, mm -hmm. right? To use their creativity in a constructive way that ends up impacting organizational results. And those would be innovations at every level. Nice. Right? So when we talk about adaptability, what does that look like? So I've had students, you know, I talk about those, some of those ideas in my classes and I've had students that call me back in the real world. When you deal with people that are dealing with this every day, they see the need to have people work together effectively, intuitively, because they're constantly bumping against those walls, those barriers when people aren't working together well. In the college classroom, they don't know yet how crucial that is, right? But everything that gets done gets done by a person. So if you need things to get done, a big question is how effectively are people doing these things? And there are some dynamics that will lead people or motivate people to do just the least required to get by. And there are other dynamics that will lead to people wanting to do everything they can, right? And there's a huge difference in terms of adaptability, in terms of potential for innovation that comes back down to those individual interactions, right? So that's the people side of things. And I, I tend to spend, that's where I think more, right? Uh, but it's got to be practical, right? You can't just stay in the ivory towers. But it is what brought me back to academics after 17, 18 years in business, kind of working at every level. Um, all right, I want to think about these ideas and kind of formalize them so that maybe I can right. make that bigger impact on how do we build adaptive organizations. So here's, here's the final question for our conversation today. What things do you think we need to do as uh, not just business owners, like somebody who owns a business and then brings in new employees, or even uh, an, an academic like yourself who has these uh, folks in your class, but, but all of us, <clears throat> from a broad spectrum standpoint, what should we be doing to make sure that we're encouraging this idea of innovation, that that across the entire enterprise, regardless of whether you're a sole proprietor, you, you've decided you're going to go do something like the uh, perhaps the student you mentioned with the pop-up and now brick and mortar, you know, shop or somebody that goes to work uh, as a part of a huge accounting firm in a in you know in a huge multinational order. What what should we be doing to specifically encourage every single person, whether they get a formal education or they've self-educated, right. now they're going to go in and start something, go to work. How do we encourage them? How do we make sure that they know how important it is to be looking for that uh, collaborative way that they're going to be innovative right wherever they are in right. the organization? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is passion, right? So, so I think more people innovate out of their passion than, than not, I guess, to, to, for lack of a better way of saying <laughs> that. I don't think we do a very good job of helping people connect with what they really enjoy and love and what they're passionate about. 
some people never find those things, right? Some people kind of are automatons. They kind of churn their way through their professional career doing things that they have to because they need to, and they never reach that point where they're kind of fueled by what really they love. While that does sound pie in the sky, I think even within the workplace, even in the mundane job where your job description is this, we still need to be working with people to find their purpose and their passion in that, right? Mm -hmm. Passion is not just one thing, I think. Passion manifests itself in different ways, and people will find that they can become passionate about the situation they're in, but how do we encourage people to find what they're passionate about? For me, when I was choosing the next steps in my career, I spent more time looking for what I thought was cool and interesting than planning, well, if I want to make executive vice VP by this date, I've got to hit this mark and hit this mark and his, right. hit this mark. And what really I found most exciting was when I could make what I thought my unique contribution in whatever the context was. In other words, I, I found that I was good at a number of things, but just being good at something was not enough to kind of ignite my passion for something. I wanted to see not only was I good at this, I was maybe the only person who could do this. Now, whatever this was mm -hmm. might change, right? It might be putting together a benefits package if I was working in human resources. It might be uh, training people in techniques to analyze a business process in another situation. It might be working with people, gathering ideas for new product uh, development stuff from all over the organization, not just from within marketing or from within product development. But if I felt like I was doing something that I was able to contribute uniquely to the good of the organization, then I was motivated by that. Well, how do you help people find those things where they can make their unique contribution? And I think when they feel like I'm making a unique contribution, not just a cog in the machine, mm -hmm. but I can really put something into this that will have an impact, then passion will flow from that. Now, I think also kind of encouraging people to think about their passions, because we're often told, don't pursue art history. My daughter's an art history major, <laughs> right? And, and as a business professor, when she said, I love art history, I had the same reaction every parent has. How are you going to make a living with that? What are that? you going to do with that? But on the other hand, I'm an organizational psychologist that was interested in people that then found my way in business and now in academics, right? I think if you're pursuing something that you're passionate about, you will find the path forward. Right. You will create the path forward. You will innovate to create the way that you can make mm -hmm. that contribution, right? So, so the motivation side of it and coming from each individual's passion, if I have a group of passionate people working on how do I play out my passion, I will find a way to make those pieces right. fit. But if you don't have people thinking about how do I make these contributions, if, you, if they're not on that level, then you're just putting pieces of a puzzle together and the puzzle might not ever dance, right? How do you, how do you get these pieces to work in a way that kind of creates something new, something that's packaged, something that's manufactured and consumed, mm -hmm. something that's innovative. I think you got to start with, you got to start with passion, right? If you want, if you want the whole organization to do it, passion is a good place to start. Well, listen, we could talk all afternoon and, uh, and we, and we might as soon as these mics go off, but I want to thank Dr. John Crispin, uh, Valdosta State University professor in business administration, entrepreneurship, just really appreciate your insight and for sharing, uh, your thoughts with us, uh, here on the podcast this afternoon. Thank you so very much. As they would say at Chick-fil-A, my pleasure. 
Well, there you have it. A great time to really kind of listen to somebody who's at the forefront of the future leaders, the people that are going to come along and be the be the ones that are going to start the, the new businesses. And, you know, as uh, as a baby boomer, uh, I, I think about what my impact on the uh, on the the, the whole uh, market is, you know, from a financial services standpoint, what has David Peterson accomplished? And I was recently talking to somebody and they asked me what was my greatest achievement uh, in all of the years that I've spent in financial services. And I thought for a minute and I said in my mind, and, and then I relayed to this person, the greatest achievement that I have is the number of people who worked alongside of me who are now leaders in our industry. So when I look at a leader, you know, show me a leader and I'll say, are there followers? Okay, if there's followers, that's a leader. But a great leader, I think, is somebody who is building leaders. And when I look around our industry and see the number of people that I had the pleasure and the honor to work alongside, uh, many of whom started with me when they were just out of college, might have been their very first job, and who stayed uh, alongside with uh, the twists and turns that we had with a company called Gold Leaf Technologies. And look at the number of people now who are in uh, active leaders in other parts of the fintech world. I am extremely gratified uh, to see all of those, quote, followers becoming amazing leaders. What are you doing if you're a leader? What are you doing to not create followers, but to build up and create leaders? And if you're a young person today who is looking at maybe starting a business or you, you just know that you're going to become the next um, you know, millennial millionaire, as John uh, talked about it, what are you doing that will enable small mistakes? How are you grooming yourself to become wise so that you can avoid the catastrophic mistakes that may tank your business. Anyway, thanks again for taking the time to listen to this week's podcast, and I look forward to joining you again in the near future. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.